Welcome to the Brady Haywood Podcast, the podcast where we look at engineering failures and disasters. My name is Sean Brady. What would you do, hypothetically speaking, if you wanted to prove the existence of the Hanging Garden of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world? Well, you could study the writings, identify the garden's like location, and then excavate to find physical proof. But what if there was a problem? What if after decades of digging you found nothing, not a single shred of evidence? Would this mean that the garden was a myth and never existed? Or would it just mean you were digging in the wrong place all along? Hello everyone, today we're going to talk about the Hanging Garden of Babylon and I can almost hear you right now saying why are we going to talk about something like this, I mean did this thing even exist and why on a, essentially an engineering podcast are we going to talk about it? Well we're going to talk about it primarily because of the incredible engineering works that would have had to underpin it to make it a reality. And we're also going to talk about it because it's a really great story about how people really may have been digging in the wrong place all along. So let's kick off let's start off with what were the seven wonders of the ancient world well essentially there were a list a bucket list if you like that were compiled by greek and roman writers for intrepid travelers to to go and see these things so in, in a way it was the the cool thing to do in the day and most of them were scattered around the shores of the mediterranean but the hanging garden of babylon was a little bit different because it was inland in, in modern iraq so what were the seven wonders well the obvious one is the great pyramid of giza which still stands but the other six were the lighthouse in Alexandria, which you know, for centuries was one of the tallest man-made structures in the world, and that was that was based in Alexandria in Egypt. There was the Colossus of Rhodes, which was this 33-metre-high statue that uh, stood at, at the, the harbour in Rhodes, and this was about the same height as the Statue of Liberty. Now, if this statue sounds familiar, then maybe it's because you're a Game of Thrones fan, because they have a similar giant statue standing at the foot of the harbour in Bravos. Then there was the statue of Zeus at Olympia. This was a giant seated figure, about 13 metres high, which was covered in ivory plates and gold panels. And it represented you know, the god Zeus sitting on an elaborate cedar wood throne, which was ornamented with emity, ivory, gold, and precious stones. Then they had the temple of Artemis at Ephesus, the mausoleum at Halicarnassus, which was essentially a form of a tomb. And finally, they have a hanging garden, which is located in the city of Babylon, which is just south of modern-day Iraq. Now, the interesting thing is that over the centuries, people have gone out and they've actually confirmed the existence of these wonders with, with physical evidence. All, except that is, for the hanging garden of Babylon. So what is this hanging garden and what makes it so special? Well, it was meant to be constructed by the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar II, around 600 BC. And it was constructed as a gift for his Persian wife. And it reminded her of, of the mountains from, from where she came from. Now, the problem we have is that we, we think of this garden as a sort of a landscape garden like you'd see at the Palace of Versailles. And you sort of say, well, what's, what's the big deal? Well, the key thing about this garden is not only did it have to be visually stunning but it also had to be technically innovative because really to to fit in the in the category of, of world wonders technically innovation technical innovation was a, was a key part of the requirements so what does the the literature tell us about this garden easiest way to think about it is that it's like a large greek amphitheater 
stone terraces. It's man-made. It's 120 metres by 120 metres in, in plan. And you've got these multi-level stone terraces. And then at the foot of this amphitheatre is a lake. Now, all along these terraces are planted the trees and flowers that make up the garden. And if you think about this for a moment, these are above you know ground level quite significantly in places. So you have to artificially water them. Also imagine that this garden is sitting in Babylon in Iraq. So it's sort of in the middle of the desert. So you've got this incredibly lush figure that's an abundance, uh, you know, symbol of abundance and fertility. It's almost like a, a garden of Eden. And of course this represented, you know, the power of Nebuchadnezzar II that he could have this garden all year round essentially to, to show off to visitors to demonstrate his his power. But that's sort of where the good news stops. Um there are problems with all these descriptions. So the first issue you have is that the, the accounts and descriptions we have of the gardens are not first-hand accounts. So they were provided by Greek and Roman writers who, who never actually saw the gardens. You know, they, they were writing about them several years after they, they, were, they were destroyed. Then we got Nebuchadnezzar's writings. So there's a huge amount of Nebuchadnezzar's writings that are still around on, on, on tablets. And he really was a huge documenter of all his achievements, especially his building projects, which he was particularly fond of. Now, the interesting thing is, in, in all these writings, he never mentions a garden. Which makes no sense, does it? I mean, if you had put together a garden that was a world wonder, wouldn't you write about it? And then finally we come to physical proof, where, where the real problem exists. An archaeologist by the name of Robert Kildawi went to Babylon between 1898 and 1917, and he began to excavate, and obviously there was interest in would he find the garden. And he found absolutely nothing that was consistent with the classical descriptions of the garden. I mean, he found structures, but but nothing like we see in the literature. The crazy thing is that since then, nobody's found anything else either. So here's your situation. No first-hand eyewitness accounts, no mention of the garden in Nebuchadnezzar's writings, and no physical proof whatsoever. So a number of academics over the, the decades have come out and said, look, this thing may never have existed. It may actually be a myth. And what we want to talk about in this podcast is, do we really believe it's a myth or not? But before we go there, let's leave the city of Babylon and travel north in Iraq. And we're going to go 300 kilometers north to a different kingdom. So we're going to leave the Babylonian kingdom and we're going to go to the Assyrian kingdom. Now the year is 1932 and there's a number of archaeologists working in the northern ancient city of Korsavad. And the two archaeologists are... Torkel Jacobson and Seton Lloyd. So one day Jacobson is approached by a workman, a guy by the name of Ali, and he says the previous summer he worked in a small village at the foot of the mountains. And he said that the village had about 18 or so mud huts, and a number of these mud huts had been repaired, and they'd been repaired using cut stone. And some of the cut stone actually bore inscriptions. Now, Jacobson listens to this, but he's pretty sceptical. Apparently these claims were reasonably common. The people would come and claim that they've seen writings or they've seen things of archaeological significance. And then when, when people go and actually investigate, it turns out not to be, to be genuine. But he does change his mind when Ali shows him sketches of the writing, which is in cuneiform, which is the ancient language of both the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Now, the next morning, Jacobson and Ali set off to find this village. And they by about noon... They get there, and they get to this long, shallow valley that's quite green, and it's bisected by a stream running down through the middle of it. And in the distance, they see the village of Jerwin. But that's not the most spectacular thing in this valley. What's truly spectacular is there is this stone wall cutting straight across the valley. This wall is long. It's about 280 metres long, and it's covered in grass, and 
it's only really recognisable as a wall because of its sharp features and also because you've got stones protruding through the turf in places. So this is an extraordinary structure to, to see in this part of the world, um, hidden away in this little valley. So they go and meet the village elder or the, the Muktara, and he brings them and shows them the mud huts where Ali said contained the inscribed stones. So Jakobsen examines the inscriptions and he recognises among the writing the name Sinanajurb, the ancient Assyrian king. Now that means these stones date back to 700 BC. Now the Mukhtar says the stones were taken from the grass-covered structure, which he says was a dam that was used in the past to capture floodwaters. And he says there are more inscriptions on the dam, and uh, he can have the villagers uncover them if Jagosin is willing to wait. So over a meal of curds, honey and crisp breads, the men wait. Then they're shown the newly uncovered inscriptions, and but these are only partially legible, so they're hard to make out. But Jagosin realises as he's reading them that he's made an astonishing discovery. So the inscription details this as one of Senator Cherub's building works. And he says, quote, I spanned bridge, then there are some illegible words, I caused to pass over upon it. Now Jackson realises this isn't a dam, this is, this is a bridge. And he, he makes a guess at the illegible words. So he says they're probably something like armies or war chariots. You know, the sentence becomes, I spanned a bridge, armies or war chariots, I caused to pass over upon it. But the incredible thing is, because it bears Sinanacherb's name, this is now the oldest bridge ever discovered. And it's considerably older than a bridge that was discovered by Kaldoi in Babylon when he was looking for the Hanging Gardens. Now over the years it would, would transpire that Jakobsen wasn't the first archaeologist to notice the bridge. But he was the only one to investigate it in detail. So other archaeologists had passed it, they'd noticed that it was either a dam or a bridge, they'd commented on it and they hadn't done anything further. One of the really interesting things is when Alexander the Great was going to, to, to fight the Persians, it's reckoned that he camped somewhere near this 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 bridge before one of his major battles. And so this bridge is a is a pretty significant heritage. Jackson decides that he needs to investigate this bridge. So the following year, they mount an expedition there. So he and his team return to Iraq, and they base themselves in a, in a nearby village, which is about five kilometers from Jerwin. And he sets about to understand more about this bridge. But something happens. Something that turns his bridge theory on its head. Three or four days into the excavation, they're visited by a physician, a guy called Petros de Vaz. And he tells them this weird and intriguing story he's heard from one of his patients. So he says, long ago, two suitors vied for the hand in marriage of the king's daughter. And the king promised her to the suitor who could supply the nearby village with water. And the story then goes on and focuses on who won the daughter's hand. But it also describes how one suitor embarked on a pretty major engineering project centred on Jerwin to bring water to a village. Now, Jagodson sits there, and he's absolutely stunned. And he asks himself, what if he's not excavating a bridge, but an aqueduct that carries water? And two days later, he gets his answer. You know, they uncover a complete inscription at the north end of the structure, which is the same one as they, they saw when they first came to the, to the bridge. And instead of referring to armies or war chariots, it reads, these waters I caused to pass over upon it. So Jagodson is looking at an aqueduct. And he's looking at an aqueduct that predated the Romans by more than half a millennium. Now this discovery, of course, has far-reaching consequences. An aqueduct means a canal. So they go in to talk to the villagers, then to the surrounding villagers, and they hear the same story of the king's daughter. But they also start to hear stories about a canal system. And they basically go from village to village 
trying to plot its course. So at one village, they uncover limestone blocks identical to those used in the Jarwin Aqueduct. At another, they find similar stones. And they find this terrace cut into the hillside. And then outside another village, they also find a terrace, and the villagers say that these terraces can be seen at intervals throughout the countryside. And their track leads them to Cunis. Now, this is a site really well known to archaeologists, and it's where the Gomel River was diverted into Sinanacherb's canal. Now, it, it really took decades to work out the full extent of this, this engineering. And interesting, they actually used the classified um, US Corona Intelligence Satellite System imagery, which which was used by a guy called Jason Orr from Harvard University, to help map the canal's network on the ground. Because it can see changes in the topography from many years ago that are essentially invisible on ground levels. But it's, it's extraordinary what the Assyrians did. From where water was diverted from the river at Cunis, it would travel through a canal constructed more than... 2,700 years ago, would cross the German aqueduct and then would flow more than 90 kilometres until it reached the ancient Assyrian capital of Nineveh. Now this infrastructure would have provided enormous benefits to Nineveh. You know, they would have got clean drinking water, they would have been able to irrigate surrounding farmland. But what about this question? What if it had an altogether much more glamorous role? Because if you think about it, if you're Sinena Cherub, and you want to build the most impressive garden in the world, you now have the single most important ingredient, water. So hang on a minute. So is it even possible that the hang garden was in Nineveh and not Babylon? Could the Greek and Roman writers simply have got the location wrong? Have they been digging in the wrong place all along? Now this is this is the theory that's advanced by Dr. Stephanie Dowley in her, her recent book, The Mystery of the Hanging Garden of Babylon. Now she's an academic at Oxford University and she's an Assyriologist and she's one of the small group of people in the world that can read cuneiform text. Now she doesn't subscribe to the view that the garden never existed. For, for her, there's far too much coherency between the various classical sources for it to be a myth. Instead, she does believe we've been looking in the wrong place, and she provides a wide range of evidence to support this view in, in her book. And we're only going to limit ourselves to, to a couple of, of key points. So her revelation came when she translated an Assyrian prism from the British Museum. So these, these prisms were common at the time. They're 37 centimetres long and they've got hexagonal sides and each side is full of cuneiform text. Now this prism describes Sinanacherb's palace and it surrounds in Nineveh. And this method of, of documenting construction projects was, was common and, and very, very clever. So what they did was they took these prisms and they buried them in the walls or the foundations of the building. So when the building eventually collapsed, the prism, in which you could describe as a last gasp of, of ego, served as a reminder of what the king had done in the past. And when Dr. Riley was deciphering the prison, she found a fascinating line of text. The text read, I raised the height of the surrounds of the palace to be a wonder for all people. I gave it the name Incomparable Palace. A high garden imitating the Aminus Mountains I laid out next to it with all kinds of aromatic plants, orchard trees. Now if you think about that, that's a remarkably similar description to the Hang Garden of ancient texts. Then another key piece of evidence came in the form of a bas-relief recovered from St. Anderchurb's palace in Nineveh. So this is a, you know, a 
piece of stone with carvings on it. And this is stored in the British Museum. Now this relief depicts a garden that was not considered to represent the Hanging Garden of Babylon because it wasn't found in Babylon. So this is you know, the, 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 the strong reminder of the dangers of implicit assumption. Because it was found in Nineveh, people just assumed it couldn't be about the Hanging Garden in Babylon. But when you actually have a look at this relief, it's remarkably consistent. So it depicts a garden in Nineveh, but is it actually the world wonder? Now, Dr. Daly believes it is. It's tiered, it's got running water, again, very similar to the classical descriptions. Now, the other interesting thing about it is that it ties into the the discovery of a German on the canal system. Because if you have a look at this relief, and I've included some links to this relief and to the, some of the classical descriptions of the garden, and if you look about one third of the way down, you see this arched structure. And this arch structure is almost identical to the design of the German aqueduct. But in this case, this arch structure is actually within these gardens. So here we've got the presence of a similarly designed structure in the gardens, supposed to view that the aqueduct was a part of a master planned water and garden system, which included German. And what this system is, is is incredible, even if this really isn't the gardens. And, and it really reminds you of what, what many of these great public achievements, the engineer required to actually make it happen, can go unheralded. But think about this for a moment. Here in Nineveh, engineers brought civilization to one of the world's great cities. And it did it more than half a millennium before engineering as a profession flourished under Roman rule. And it's incredibly extensive. There are four canal systems at all, each having reservoirs, dams, and covered sluices to regulate flow. The Cunis to Nineveh section was up to 100 metres wide and covered a distance of 90 kilometres. And will you hear this? It dropped one metre per kilometre to ensure gentle flow. So it had a steady gradient. And es- experts estimate that this system could deliver about 300 tonne of water per day to the garden. And central to its operation was the Jerwin Aqueduct, which we've already discussed. Now, this was 280 metres long, 22 metres wide, which is not including its buttresses, and 9 metres high. This must have been incredibly striking to Jacobson when he saw it cut through the valley on the first time. And it's built from more than 2 million individual stones. And, you know, at its time, it was unlike anything constructed in the West. You know, in 1935, Seton Lloyd, one of the, the original um, archaeologists, he took samples of a mortar between the stones, and he sent it off to the building research station of the British Department of Scientific and Industrial Research, which is a bit of a mouthful. And he sent it off there for analysis. And when they analysed, they found it was concrete. So here was concrete 2,700 years ago. And... What all this really means is, you know, the engineering accomplishments that, you know, and the technology that we generally attribute to the Greeks and the Romans was being used by the Assyrians in Iraq many centuries earlier. But the story doesn't end there. You know, perhaps the most impressive innovation was something much, much smaller in scale, but no less indispensable if you want to build a hanging garden. And what this invention was, however, depends on your interpretation of the world Alamiti, assuming I'm pronouncing that right. What have we got so far? Well, we've, we've gotten this sort of evidence for the garden that we can get water from the mountains and we can move it 90 kilometres to Nineveh and we can provide it to the garden. Okay, so we got water to the garden, but how do you transfer it to the trees and plants on the upper level? One 
explanation can be found in the translation. Quote, instead of shidufs, I let beams and alamati stand over the wells. Now, shidouf is, is a, a bucket-levered system, but Sennacherib says he used beams and alamati over these wells. Now, the word beams, you can retranslate that apparently as meaning cylinders, but what does alamati mean? Alamati means a date palm, so a type of palm tree. So that doesn't appear initially very helpful. How would you use a date palm to bring water up the various levels of the garden? But Dr. Daly doesn't believe it actually refers to an actual date palm. She thinks it, it refers to something that looks like a date palm. And she uses the analogy, which is, you know, when in a thousand years when people look at our writings, we'll describe it how we use a mouse to control our computer. But it's not a real mouse. It's the name we give for the device we use to control our computer. And she believes the same sort of shorthand is taking place here. They didn't use a date palm. They used something that looks like a date palm. So she goes and she actually tracks down a date palm, which is in Oxford's Botanic Gardens. And pretty much unseen, it immediately understands the meaning of Sinanacherib's inscription. And what happens is the branches of a date palm go outward from the trunk in a spiral fashion. In other words, the three trunks look like a screw. So what Sinanacherib meant by the word cylinder also becomes obvious. The screw sits inside the cylinder to form an Archimedes screw. And if you're confused with what an Archimedes screw is, best to google it but essentially imagine a cylinder that with the bottom half sitting in water and the top half sitting with where you want the water to go and you put this screw inside it and as you turn that screw it collects the water and carries it up through the cylinder and dumps it out the top so this is how dr daly believes water was transferred up the tiered garden so the screw rotates and brings it up from the ground level below. And of course, these are all hidden. They're all automatic. Once you, you, you keep the mechanics of it behind the scene, you can water your garden and keep it peaceful for people who want to enjoy it. But what this means, if this is the case, is that the Archimedes screw actually predated Archimedes by about 350 years. Now, in fact, many scholars agree that the screw was in use long before Archimedes discovered it. So Dr. Daly's translation of the word Alamati also ties back nicely to the classical author Strabo's descriptions of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, where he specifically mentions the use of Archimedes screws. So we get some tie-in back there. So let's think about this for a moment. Water begins its journey 90 kilometers away. It's carried across northern Iraq, only to be lifted by Archimedes screws, all the way to create a garden that was lush all year round. A garden that just may have been one of the great wonders of the ancient world. But is it? Is it the great wonder? Well, detailed physical investigation has, has had to wait. Um, it hasn't been possible to launch an expedition to Nineveh. And it may not be possible to do so for some time already. Even though at the time of recording things are changing. The problem is the ancient city of Nineveh lies across the river Tigris from modern day Mosul. And one of the, the, the great battles of our time is happening there now. Because in June 2014, Mosul was overrun by one of the most brutal regimes of our time. Islamic State. Physical investigation will just have to wait.